our opportunity is to hold our leaders accountable to their highest and best selves by saying, give us the ballot. And the worry is that, unfortunately, the courts and our leaders will not protect us from the worst instincts of politics. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, Rose Reed. Today, we are speaking to the first African-American woman to run for governor of Georgia, and she may just be the next vice president of the United States, Stacey Abrams. Our responsibility is to ensure that the right to vote is both safe and accessible. And what COVID-19 has put into sharp relief is that safety and accessibility sometimes don't look identical. Our responsibility then is to create alignment. Stacy's priority isn't who's on the ballot, but to ensure that every American can cast one. And both federal courts and politicians are at a crossroads how to proceed. The president recently said he wouldn't sign a relief bill if it included voter protection. That if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. This is getting a lot of attention after Wisconsin's April 7th primary where its Supreme Court voted remotely that voters could not vote remotely, refusing the governor's request to postpone the election. This morning, people in Wisconsin have a tough choice to make. Protect their health by following the state's stay-at-home order or exercise their right to vote. Since the Wisconsin primary, there have been confirmed cases of voters contracting the coronavirus while at the polls. And Stacey Abrams is very familiar with the nuances and impact of voter suppression. The current governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, personally oversaw the purging of millions of voters and closed hundreds of precincts, and then beat Stacey Abrams in 2018 by 55,000 votes. However, over 80,000 votes have been mismanaged or discounted during the election. So Stacey did not concede. I acknowledge that former Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be certified as the victor in the 2018 gubernatorial election but to watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in this state baldly pin his hopes for election on the suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling. So let's be clear, this is not a speech of concession. For me, this is personal. Georgia's my home state and it's where I think about my future and where my entire family lives. Just this past week, Brian Kemp, against the wishes of both the president and the mayor of Atlanta, lifted shelter-in-place orders to reopen businesses like tattoo parlors and nail salons. Stacey Abrams is working with Fair Fight to protect voters' rights from home, where she's quarantining in Georgia. We spoke over the phone. What do you think is your biggest concern uh, for voter suppression at this moment? Our responsibility is to ensure that the right to vote is both safe and accessible. What happened in Wisconsin on April the 7th is the exact opposite of what we should be doing, which is that priority was given to power instead of to people. In disasters, we are often called to move quickly and to make decisions that are informed, but sometimes do not, you know, do, we're not possessed of all the information we need. What's true about COVID-19 is that we can see the future right now. We know that this is a disease that is going to continue to hit hard. There may be moments of relief, but that the best ways to mitigate the harm 
is to socially distance. We also know that elections are coming in November. We know the day, we know the time, we know where we need to hold them, and we know that they cannot be moved. And so with those two very clear pieces of information, our opportunity is to react and to anticipate. And the safest way to do this is to allow people to vote by mail, as many people as possible. And the reason is, is it's the safest way to vote, but you also then filter out, you sift out everyone who can vote that way so that you're left only with those who cannot vote by mail. And that means you've reduced the likelihood of harm and you're creating still the opportunity for accessibility for people who have to vote in person. That's the way we should operate because we have made it safe for everyone as, as we can. And we've also made it accessible to the extent possible. The challenge is that Republicans unfortunately seem to be hell-bent on restricting access, not because they're worried about safety or accessibility, but because they're worried about losing power. And this is something that's actually been stated by the Speaker of the House in Georgia, by the President of the United States, that their fear is not fear of accessibility or safety, but of partisanship. And what's your COVID experience been like? Are you feeling safe? Is your family safe? Yeah. So I have family in California, Kentucky, and then throughout Georgia. We're all sheltering in place. Everyone so far is doing well. But my parents are uh, more susceptible. They're over 70. And my dad has both emphysema and prostate cancer. So he is among the most medically fragile. And luckily, they've been able to take advantage of living in a community that has provided ways for them to take care of themselves. My deepest worry, though, is that there are so many people throughout the South and around the country who are both medically fragile but are isolated from opportunity and from the services they need. And we know that for people of color, for the economically vulnerable, that COVID is wreaking havoc and that these are the least resilient population. So while I am personally safe and healthy, my constant worry is about those who do not have the same infrastructure around them that my family and I do. You've been very open about um, describing yourself as an introvert and your Myers-Briggs is that INTJ, uh, introverted, intuitive, thinking, judging, aka the architect. My sister, who also describes herself as an introvert, has was joking with me that introverts have been preparing for this state of living for their entire lives. <laughs> and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I think she is correct. <laughs> <laughs> I have been, uh, my, my siblings laugh at me. Uh, they're about, so there are six of us. Three of us are introverts. Three of us are extroverts. And the introverts are doing much better with this whole thing than the extroverts are. Uh, luckily, all of my extroverted family members are sheltered in place with others. And two of myself and my sister, who are the introverts, we are by ourselves. And then my brother, yeah, he decided to marry and have children. So he reaps what he sows. Um, but, <laughs> but I do think it has been less difficult for me than for others because it gives me time to think, time to work, time to focus on the issues that continue even as we live in this moment, uh, focusing on making sure that our, our elections are safe, making sure our census is accurate, and thinking about how we respond to the most vulnerable and the least resilient communities. And I've had time to continue to work on those things. 
I know that you are the second of six children. How does that play out in the taxonomy of building yourself as a, as a leader? What's that look like? So my older sister refers to me as 1.5. So she's the captain. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> sometimes she lets me be in charge of things, sometimes not. My, my taxonomy is that Andrea is the captain. I was always you know, finance and logistics. Leslie was the cruise director and the younger three are the, the crew. So, <laughs> you know, and we very easily fall into that rubric when things are necessary when we're together. And for me, that means I will tend to step in to build things, but I am actually very comfortable in then shifting leadership and responsibility to those who've demonstrated their capacity. So for example, I, you know, I created in the wake of the 2018 election, I created Fair Fight to focus on voter suppression and voter protection. I created Fair Count to focus on the census. And I created the Southern Economic Advancement Project to focus on progressive policy in the South. But in each of those spaces, I built the infrastructure, I raised the funding, but I also made certain that I I put in place very strong leaders because part of what I learned from my sister and from our family is that if you're always the essential person, then you're not doing your job right. People should be able to lead on their own. And the strongest leaders, and this is something I learned as a manager, the strongest leaders are ones who create stronger leaders. And part of my obligation has been throughout my, my career, when I create organizations, when I set up structures, that if I'm doing my job well, other people can do the job. You know, you've talked about how your family's tight-knit. You, uh, in your book, um, Lead from the Outside, you describe some really wonderful and long-term friendships and working relationships with those that you've built businesses with. It sounds to me like you've had a really great support network. I can also imagine that with your bid for governor and making some of those first phone calls, the disappointment and shock of some of those people, whether it's tertiary or second tier friendships, saying to you, I'm not sure I want to invest yet because I'm not sure about this viability. How have you decided or navigated to venture out into new relationships to trust new people or to keep your circle small and tight as you pursue really ambitious and worthwhile pursuits? Unfortunately, the experience of the primary election helped me understand people who I thought were first order were actually second or third order. And I did have, uh, not a lot, but I had a handful of people who I would have put in that first order friendship who savagely disappointed me, Um, some by not believing in others, by actively working against me. And when confronted or when we had the conversation about it, the explanations were never about a doubt in my capacity. It was a doubt about what I look like, who I am. And it was never, you did this thing that I think is wrong. It was, I just don't believe enough in you. And that is, I think, harder than anything else. But I I think the reality is you you can't excise people from your life, but you can learn from their behavior. 
And so those who may have been first order may now be third order. And those whose rationale was suspect, I now know what to trust and what to ask for. It can sound cold, but I, I think there's a logic to love where you can't afford to cut yourself off completely, but you have to know what you've been told. Uh, you know, Maya Angelou is credited with saying, you know, if someone shows you who they are, believe them. And that election process really put into sharp relief for me the legitimacy of that, that notion, that there were people who showed me who they were, and I, I believe them. But I, I will say the joy was that there are people I would have put as third or fourth order, people I didn't even know I liked, who stepped up in extraordinary ways that had nothing to do with benefit to themselves, but purely a belief in the possibility of my leadership and what we could do together. And they haven't disappeared. And so for every lost friendship or weakened bond, I can point to new bonds that have forced me to remain open to the opportunity of new people in my life because I didn't know who I had until this crucible of an election really showed me. Stacy describes her ever-evolving relationship with fear and the first thing she would do if she were president of the United States. That's coming up after the break. You know, you've chosen to be public about some really private matters. For example, you've been really honest about going into debt after attending Spelman and Yale, sharing that you owed the IRS over $50,000 in deferred tax payments, which you're currently on a payment plan for, and that you hold more than $170,000 in credit card and student loan debt. For many of us, debt is tied up in shame and fear. And you've talked a lot about facing fear. How would you describe your relationship with fear now? Is it something that you feel like you've conquered or is it something that still ebbs and flows for you? Well, one thing I talk about in the book is that fear is real and it is pervasive and it is multifaceted. But when you accept that it's real, you realize you can't conquer it. The most you can do is befriend it and manage it. Because the reality of that fear doesn't disappear simply because you decide you're, you're bigger than it. It's still out there. Because what fear presents to you is, here are the things that could go horribly wrong. And here are the ways you could be harmed by this. The fact that you don't want that to be true does not mean that it's not going to be true. But what I do with fear is that I acknowledge it. You know, I take it out to dinner. We have a nice conversation. But I then prepare myself for what the consequences of moving forward will be anyway. I've learned that I was wrong when I used to tell people be fearless. That's completely impossible unless you are so wealthy and so privileged and protected that there's nothing to be afraid of. For everyone else, there's a legitimacy to fear. It's a warning system, but it's also a, a map. It tells you here are the things that are likely obstacles, here are the consequences, and thus figure out how you can mitigate the harm as much as possible, because that's the most any of us can do. You, you can't stop these things from being true or not true, but you can mitigate the impact they have on who you are. And so when it came to money, one of the reasons I am so open about debt is that one of the fears we have is that 
it means that we are incapable of being successful. Another fear we have is that it is going to render us ineligible for opportunity. And those are legitimate things. There were people in this campaign, in my, in my 2018 campaign, who tried to use that as a disqualifier. And so it was not an illegitimate fear for me to have. But what I learned was that my responsibility was to navigate it as best as possible. And part of that navigation was acknowledging it. Those of us who have navigated this world without have to stand together. And there are lots of different reasons for our debt. There are lots of different reasons for our challenges. But as an introvert, it is deeply discomforting for me to talk about these things. But as a human, it is necessary. And as someone who wants to be a leader, it is essential. Because I can't pretend things don't exist. And I don't have the luxury of saying, trust me, if you don't know that I understand who you are. Because I've been there myself. You went to Yale Law School, you've worked as a tax attorney, you served in the Georgia House of Representatives. Did you set out to become fluent in the languages of the systems of power, of money, and policy? When I was in college, I, I did my spreadsheet and I listed my, my ambitions. And what I decided was I needed to understand how people live, what happens to them, and how you fix it. So I studied sociology, political science, and economics. And that was very intentional because I understood that for the change I wanted to see in the world, I needed to understand behavior, the systems that surround it, and the methods of change. By the same token, I realized that I needed to also understand how the private sector worked, how the public sector worked, and how the nonprofit sector worked. And so one of the things I'm proudest of is that I actually have been very effective as a leader in all three dimensions, that my work has led me to be a, a leader and a manager in the private sector in ways that I think a lot of folks miss when they read my bio. But by the same token, I was also able to build nonprofits, build companies, and build a caucus. Because part of being able to navigate in a, to your language to be fluent is that you often have to immerse yourself and what I've always tried to do is, even when I'm immersed in one area, when I was a tax attorney, I was also spending time in the nonprofit space and in the public sector. I'd never abandon one for the others. In your book, you share this story about being an eighth grader and winning an essay contest. And when you went to collect your $50 prize, the school official didn't believe that you were the winner and even asked to see your photo ID, which you know, someone who's 13 years old doesn't have a photo ID, but you demanded your prize again. And that's one of the stories I think is so emblematic of your historic run for governor. So many people can see themselves and your drive and your morals and the way that you confront and rise above challenges. Those attributes make you a more viable candidate. And what made supporters of yours so hungry to see you in office can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think what you said is very kind, and I would hope that it is so. The most important part of leadership is that you not simply know the answers, but you know how to ask the questions, and you know how to find the answers. And I've spent my life, either with intentionality or not, trying to find the answers. Because even when the, the woman wouldn't give me my money, I knew I didn't have the personal bandwidth to compel her, but I knew my dad was outside. 
<laughs> so I learned to use <laughs> the, that, that power lever to get what I needed. I confronted racism and sexism and, you know, all of the, the isms that unfortunately can come with my background. But the challenge was to not simply survive them, but learn how to tell other people how to, to navigate them as well. And fundamentally, that's, that's the most important part of leadership. People don't want you to fix their lives. They want you to help them understand how to fix it themselves, and they want you to remove the unnecessary barriers that are artificial or that are mean. And my engagement in almost every facet of my life has been driven by this notion that these are solvable problems. Poverty is solvable. Racism is, if not solvable, then at least you can mitigate its effect. That sexism has answers. That as an ally to communities that are not my own, whether it's religious communities or the LGBTQ community or the disabled community, I may not personally have those challenges or face those face the, the obstacles that come along with that immutable part of who I am, but I know how to address it. And more importantly, I know how critical it is to be seen. No one is ever going to be 100% of anyone's experience. But the extent to which you can be, again, I like your language of fluency, you can be fluent in the parts that you understand, you can be conversant in the parts you have had access to, and you can be curious about learning the pieces you don't know. That's what makes leadership strong. That's what makes leadership possible. As a candidate, I was successful in bringing together a coalition of Black and Latino and Asian Pacific Islander, of LGBTQ, of young people, of white women, of white men, of educated, of rural and urban and suburban, that was unprecedented in Georgia. And it was not simply because of who I am. It was because they believed in what I stood for and what they had seen me say and do. And fundamentally, whether it's you know an eighth grader trying to get her prize or a candidate trying to win an election, the job isn't necessarily to do it yourself, but it's to know how to make it possible for it to be done. This example is, is so prescient. And I think that you do stand for more than just the quote unquote others. I think that's where we as Georgians and as Americans really have a place to shine because when people like Brian Kemp, who use voter suppression and take advantage of his role as Secretary of State to be contestant referee and scorekeeper in his race, he's also blindly missing out on the fact that his emancipation is caught up in all of ours. When you think about your ultimate goal, what would be the first thing that you would do as president or in a role where you could really utilize your platform for so many Americans? I would fix our voting processes. The point of entry to democracy and thus to power is the ability to participate in the system and to select your leaders. Because the leadership that we select often shapes the policies that we live with, the access that we have, and the outcomes that we see. If you fix our democracy so that we have automatic registration and same-day registration, that we eliminate voter purges, that we make it easier for people to vote, and that we make voting accessible to all, and that we secure our elections so that people can trust the outcomes. 
If you do that, you have fundamentally changed the nature of democracy, and thus you've shifted the balance of power back to the people, and that's what we need. Little known fact about Stacey Abrams, she is the author of eight romance and suspense novels, which have sold more than 100,000 copies. So we're going to talk about love. That's coming up after the break. For my lightning round, we call it truth or truth going light after we go deep. Mm-hmm. Um, you've written many romance novels under the pen name Selena Montgomery. What is your favorite thing about love? The theory. <laughs> I, 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 I am captivated by the notion that someone can get to know the whole of you and still like you <laughs> and still want to be with you and want to spend a lifetime with you because knowledge sometimes has the opposite effect. And so I just, I love the theory of someone finding you and deciding that they have to be near you and with you for the rest of their lives. And if you were to give a tattoo symbol to everyone for fair fight, what would it be? Hmm. It'd be a check mark. Check the box, (laughs) check the future. And let's check those people who would try to stop us. Leader Abrams, thank you for your time. I'm really excited to uh, maybe see you as vice president or president in the very near future. Thank you, Rose. I really appreciate this. To learn more about Stacey Abrams and her work, visit fairfight.com. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Nora Kipnis, Kevin Murphy, Sabine Jansen, Michael Holloman, Nan Orock, Midge Sweet, and Gail Reed. On our next episode, I sit down with a woman who is in charge of the country's oldest federal cultural institution, the director of the Library of Congress, Dr. Carla Hayden. For libraries to be closed during a national crisis is very hard for the public librarians in particular because they are usually the places that are sanctuaries, that are non-judgmental, they're bipartisan. This is where you go for help. If you like this episode, tell a friend about it. It really helps our show grow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Can you say that again? So are you enjoying quarantine, Grandma? I said, well, I, can, I, I have to. I have no choice. Hello? What's the hardest thing about it? Oh, being alone all the time. And what's the easiest thing about it? Um... Dressing very casually and comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) How can you dress even more casually? Oh, I'm wearing moccasins instead of shoes. Uh, I wear jeans and a T-shirt. You know, my hair's getting real gray. Wow, really?
Yeah. Nothing I can do about that, baby. <laughs> <laughs> 